Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. I'm joined today by the wonderful film critic Kristen Lopez, whose views on films you can hear in several podcasts, and you can also read in numerous publications, including Hollywood Reporter, RogerEbert.com, The Daily Beast, Slash Film, and she's also the editor-in-chief of CC2K. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm good. Excellent. My regular co-host, Andrew Hathaway, is on hiatus for the year, but you can still support his work by visiting can'tstopthemovies.com. Normally, we like to kick things off with a short film that you can watch online for free, but due to travel schedules and just being super busy. General exhaustion. And general exhaustion, which is the main reason. I decided to forego the short film this week. We'll bring it back in the next episode. And we're just going to jump into our feature film today. Our feature film is one that, Christian, that you had recommended that we check out. And it's one that I had actually not seen before. So I'm very interested to, to hear your thoughts on this. The film that we're going to be discussing today is The Children's Hour, directed by William Wyler. It's adapted from Lillian Hellman's play. And it follows the events at a private girl's school when a troublemaking student accuses two teachers of being lesbians. Kristen, why don't you start us off? What do you think of this film? So this is actually a remake uh, of a, let me double check before I get, of a 1936 film called These Three, which has uh, Joel McRae, Merle Oberon, and Miriam Hopkins, um, also directed by William Wyler. He he essentially came back for the remake. And that film I had seen alongside this one. I've seen this one more than I've seen These Three. These Three is a really interesting movie, but it's 1936. So you really can't talk about homosexuality, lesbian in any overt way. And so I think the way they play it in these three is the accusation is that the Martha character is into the the male lead and that there's some sort of not quite devil's threesome, but that there's infidelity going on there. That's the original film. And it, it's fine. It's perfectly serviceable for 1936. And if you want to see three of the most dropped dead beautiful people in cinema in the 30s in a movie... Definitely watch it. This movie, though, which I've seen more than than these three, I saw this first, is considered a landmark in LGBT cinema. And I say landmark in that it's one of the first movies to be really frank in America about lesbianism. It's not progressive in any way, shape, or form. But it was one of the few films to openly discuss it. Up until this point, homosexuality, if it was adapted to film, was often changed. I think of like the 1940s film Crossfire, if anybody's seen that. It was homosexuality in the original book, and they changed it to anti-Semitism in the movie. But this movie deals with it in a very frank manner. You know, Karen, Audrey Hepburn's character, says that the accusation is that her and Martha are lovers. So there's no hiding it. But it is still very reductive, the concept that if you are a lesbian, the only way to help save heterosexuality is to kill yourself. It's It's been discussed really well. If anybody's seen the documentary, The Celluloid Closet, this is kind of the, the linchpin film that everybody brings up. But all of that aside, historical connotations aside, I do really enjoy this movie a lot, mostly because of how phenomenal Shirley MacLaine is. I think she's brilliant in this movie. Miriam Hopkins is also in this movie, although she plays the aunt role, opposed to playing the lead that she did in this movie. And I think she's also very good. There's a lot of good interaction and discussion about the concept of like standing up for something. This is post-McCarthyism by 1961. So it's it's definitely a, a well-shot movie. It's it's a really, I mean, everything William Wyler made is really good. And I like this movie a lot. If, if you want a good 
good historical foundation for what was considered shocking regarding homosexuality in the 60s. This is all usually on the list, even though it is woefully dated by 2018. This was one that I struggled with because there's a lot of it that I really liked. And actually, I would say the majority of it I, I enjoyed. But I had to cu- keep reminding myself to, to look at it with 1961 eyes and not modern day. And partly because, as you said, it, the notion that person is coming to terms with their sexuality and then the only joy that they find is through suicide, it kind of irked me. And I think that's just because we've seen so many films kind of tackle that. But getting past that, there was much that I did like about this. And I thought Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn were phenomenal in this. And I was shocked that they didn't even get um, any Oscar recognition. I think it was Faye Bainter that she she ended up getting a supporting nomination. I was like, oh, well, I guess she was fine. And it's like, I don't know, I didn't think that she was as stunning as Hepburn or McLean or even the girl that played Mary. Oh, Karen Balkin. Karen Balkin. Like, she's the... the... We're going to talk about Karen Balkin because I have issues with her. <laughs> okay, well, we, I, I will save my, my thoughts on her, but I will say that she, she does the job well in terms of being that kid that halfway through the film is like, oh, I can't stand her. Yeah, 19... The early 60s was a really weird time, and you'd start to see a lot more shift as we get closer into the 70s, with the studio system effectively crumbling. And so you were you were getting more provocative films, like The Children's Hour, like the Italian cinema, La Dolce Vita came out the, the same year. You were getting a lot more darkness and cynicism. In 1961, the the Oscars in 62, looking at what was nominated that year, it was pretty much a debate between West Side Story, a candy-coated, pretty racist depiction, uh, a Hollywood depiction of, of race, versus Judgment in Nuremberg. Very ensemble hard, dark, gritty look at the Holocaust. You could not have been more divergent. And so looking at what was nominated that year, especially for actress in a lead role, Audrey Hepburn was nominated that year, but she was nominated for Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is, it's understandable. Yeah, it's, a, it's an iconic role. Yeah, and the that year, she didn't win. Sophia Loren won for two women. She was the first actress to win an Academy Award for a foreign language film. And it's one of those moments where you're just thinking, really, especially compared to the fact that Natalie Wood was nominated that year, Geraldine Page, Piper Laurie, these old world examples of America. And Sophia, I mean, Sophia Loren probably deserved I've not seen two women, but it's still a very weird they love no- nominating, at least back in the day, they love giving it to the foreign ingenue. And so, yeah, it is It is surprising that this movie, um, and in case anybody wonders, Faye Bainter winning, nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Rita Moreno, the only Latina in West Side Story, won the Oscar that year in that category. So, yeah, it, it is surprising, and it, it is a little sad that this movie didn't rack up the nominations like it, it should have. I also think it's a very quiet film that was really challenging at the time, the assumptions of what was considered a good taste for for Hollywood to show. I can, I can see that. And one of the things I found interesting was the film plays up the are they aren't they at the at the beginning you get a kind of inkling of something and then as this whole scandal unfolds and you see how they the women become pariahs in their community you almost forget 
about the the real core of like if either one of them is and it's specifically martha because we get the inkling at the very beginning that martha gets very upset when joe played by james Gardner, comes around and you know she she seems to be angry at men for at least this particular guy that that comes in and as the film goes on it's more about the plight that they're going through and them losing the school and they talk about a trial where i guess a key witness was missing and we don't even see that trial it's just kind of mentioned briefly and then i thought by time you get that really great powerful scene with karen and martha where martha is admitting to herself the feelings that she's always felt but didn't quite know how to articulate them i felt that almost came a little too late in the film and i guess again if this is the as you said a landmark film and to broach that issue frankly i can see why weiler would kind of hesitate bringing that in earlier but i almost wish that that we had a little more time to let that gestate well see you know it's it's an hour and 48 minute movie and i do think that a lot happens in about the final 20 minutes i'll i'll, I'll go with you there but I do think in watching it this time, especially, I noticed that there are a lot of little allusions to things that you can read as either being completely innocuous or indicative of Martha's love for Karen. It starts right when Joe shows up and he said he tells, you know, Martha, I forget what they're talking about, but he says, maybe it's just me. And Martha turns around. And she says, maybe it is. And she sounds very surprised by it. But there's a double meaning to that. Maybe it is Joe who is causing her to be irritated or that she sees as a competitor for Karen. Or maybe it's me, me being Martha, that she's the one with the problem. And you get these illusions throughout the whole movie, whether it's, you know, them talking about how they've known each other since they were 17, how they went to college together. So that by the time... Lily, the Miriam Hopkins character, Martha's aunt, says, you know, you've always been jealous and possessive anytime you had a friend. There's been these references along the way to help guide you, at least the, that I noticed. But you are right. A lot happens in the last 20 minutes where you're it's almost breathless because of how how much is happening. Uh, the Faye Bainter character comes in and tries to set everything right there. And Lily shows back up again and tries to set things right on her end. And then before you know it, Martha's off herself. And the movie, I mean, we can talk about the end when we get to the end. The movie really ends with this a concept of, isn't it great that the heterosexuals survive? They're going to go on and live a, a happy life. And even though it's sad that Martha's gone... They, they connected on a certain necessary. level. Yeah, it was necessary. She's she's in a better place. And again, I have to keep reminding myself, this is the 1960s. You know, back then this was thought-provoking. But that, again, that tail end just really bothers me. But Yeah, and, and I mean, again, I think in the original film, in these three, because again, it's supposed to be that both women are in love with the same man. Martha tells Karen that she loves Joe but it's okay because she didn't tell him that she loves him. And I think at the end, all of them reunite and they're all good friends. And um, so it's an even happier ending than the original or that than this version is. And, and so there's, there's that. What I really appreciate about this version of the children's hour is that the focus is really on the two women. I feel like in the original film, because the villainess, the little girl, is played by Bonita Granville, 
who was best known to people as Nancy Drew, that she kind of has equal status with the act with the older actors. Here, and I mentioned at the beginning, I hate Karen Balkin in this role. Mostly because you're supposed to hate Mary. But I also think Karen Balkin is just a really bad actress. And not intentionally bad. Like, she, she she pretends to faint at one point. I mean, she's a hypochondriac. Every time she gets in trouble, she comes up with this new ailment to make this people sympathize with her. But there are just actual line readings that she does that are just bad. Yeah, there's was, there was a moments. There was a few moments where I felt that Weiler was kind of feeding her the lines. Like, you, you know, how sometimes... All actors have it, but especially with children actors where they can't quite remember the full thing. I just felt like she was either reading a cue card or someone was feeding her. Like not not all the time, but certain instances when she's being really uh, mischievous and malicious. I thought she was really enjoyable, but the the performance can be hit or miss at times. But she she's effective in making you despise her. And what I found interesting with that is how quickly her aunt is willing to believe her tall tales because, again, a child would never think of that. Even you know, even though the film alludes to the, the girls at that school looking at material that they probably shouldn't be looking at, you know, they're yeah. they're getting an education from each other, which is what all kids do every generation which is not necessarily the best type of education so they're seeing the world and seeing things that they can't quite process and they don't know how to process and it's an interesting snowball effect especially when mary starts blackmailing the other girl yeah i would have i I always say when i watch this that i kind of wish there had been a bit more confusion from the mary character that she, we, we watch her get glimpses of certain things that happen between Karen and Martha that she could easily have misinterpreted, and I would have liked that a bit more. But at a certain point, it just becomes straight out, no, she's just outright lying, and she knows what she's doing. And I, I think I would have liked a bit more ambiguity there, mostly because I, I don't, the, the girls are so young. One of the girls is played by uh, Veronica Cartwright from The Birds. I, I just, I don't believe that they're naturally that scheming, at least the Mary character to me. Um, but you brought up Faye Bainter, who plays the grandmother. She plays Mary's grandma. And what I always, again, a lot of it's under the surface. So the way I interpret the relationship is that Mary is obviously has no parents. Her grandmother is the one raising her for reasons or spoiling her. We're never really clear on on how that dynamic works. But I I took it as she is so quick to believe because of her own inner prejudices, which is that she believes that two women who work in close proximity together can't without being becoming lesbians at a certain point. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that I think the the film does well is it shows you how quickly most of the people in that community are willing to believe that lie. Yeah, and especially because Martha is 28 and she's not married and she doesn't have a boyfriend. You know, already that's warning signs. I'm definitely screwed then if that's the <laughs> <a> criteria. <laughs> well, as long as you don't go back into the 60s, you're you're okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because even you know, uh, in our last episode we were talking about "Call You by Your Name" and we were talking about you know the there's a gaze of desire with those characters and here there the gaze is cold. It's like you know there's that chilling scene when Karen and Martha decide you know they've been kind of shacked up in this school that's 
with the kids slowly depleting and they're going to finally go out and you know there's these men that stop in a truck just to kind of gaze at the the women and there's there's not much said in that scene but it's pretty chilling and then later on there's a guy that drops off the delivery he's delivering yeah the the guy that he's delivering not milk but it's something like that yeah something that they need and he takes a moment to kind of look at both of them with a little bit of a smirk. And even as they're telling him to, you know, get out of there, he's he's sauntering. You know, like the, the gaze is very eerie, almost very violent, even though there's no violence in this film. But, you know, just the threat of it. And I think Wilder does a really good job of just showing how, how quickly paranoia can turn into hatred, which can turn into violence. And... I think all that stuff is great, and especially how it impacts even someone like Joe, who's an upstanding doctor, and I think it was his employer tries to give him a way out. You know, if you disassociate yourself from those women, then all is fine, because we know, Joe, it's not your fault what's what's happened. Any woman would want you, so it's clearly not you. Even when Joe tries to take a, take a stand... You know, he loses his job over over that friendship. There's a really, and I mean, keep in mind, you know, the the early '60s saw this rise of the LGBT movement. It was slowly starting. There were there were mass protests. There was there was riots in 1959 in Los Angeles where they were actually rioting. I think it's called something the, the Cooper Donuts riot in May of 59. So I mean, this was all slowly coming to a head. And I think about eight years later, Stonewall would happen, which really kicked off the the gay rights movement. And here, what I find really fascinating about this movie more than anything is how Wyler and and this, again, based on a play by Lillian Hellman, who dated the ultra-masculine Ernest Hemingway, whose books are all about how men are, see themselves as unable to perform. And, and all there's so many, like, penis envy moments in Hemingway's novels. But what, what I like that John Michael Hayes, who wrote the script, does is really look at what the fear that these women create for men. So, and how that in turn makes that men feel the need to assert themselves. So like when that guy walks into their house and he takes his time to leave, that's very frightening. You know, if, if you are a woman, especially you have some strange dude wandering around your house who sees you as like a circus freak and who knows what he's going to do to assert his power. I mean, that's a very tense moment. Then you have poor Joe. I love James Garner. I, I love everything he does. And he tries so hard to be the the good guy. You know, the guy who's like, these are my friends and I'm going to support them and screw you if you don't like it. And But he as a man, as the movie asserts, has to know. He has to know whether his his fiance, the, the soon-to-be mother of his children, is into women. And that, thre that threatens his masculinity because yes, there is that concept of like, did I do this? Am I I not man enough if I can turn Audrey Hepburn into a lesbian? And so when he finally asks, your heart breaks a little bit because you're like, you are so stupid. That's not how any of this works. And I, I do like that the movie doesn't end with her, with, you know, the heteros going off and getting married and having babies and everything. Karen and, and Joe don't reunite at the end of this film, which I thought was good. But, but it does do something really interesting in looking at how lesbianism, because it's also women taking control of their sexual destiny and 
independence and all of this, how it really it's contextualized through this whole second wave feminism and how ultimately men find that frightening. I found it was really fascinating, sly little bit of subtext. Especially when, as you said at the end, Joe and Karen don't get together and you know it was the moment he asked the question that Karen knew all hope was done. The fact that you, you're an ally, but you're not really a true ally in the grand scheme of things. At the, at the end of the day, you're just like them. It's an interesting dynamic between the three because even when Joe is still on their side, especially early on, there's certain things that he does that still shows that as a male, he can get away with it. And I'm thinking like when he spanks mary in that one scene and then tries to run away before anyone can catch him and there's a lot of confusion going on in that scene and he's still able to kind of play it off as i don't know you know it's like well yes mary's a a pain in the butt but he's not your kid she's not your kid you know and but you as a man and especially in that era feel that you have the right to give her a, a a quick spanking but you can't even stand by that conviction you you immediately have to run away because you realize you're you're you don't have the power in that situation well he also has issues with martha very slyly too you know when him and karen are going to go out and karen invites martha to come with them and he says well i don't have enough energy for two women you know he doesn't want to take her with them and so there is this this really interesting dynamic about women wanting to be with other women just as friends or as a buffer and how that really, as, as nice of a guy as Joe is, how men find female friendships to be threatening. In many ways, Joe's an afterthought for a lot of this film, which I also liked. Because, as you said, it's really about the female friendship. And it's also about how the women are interacting with the community, but also the children. Because they... When they're trying to discipline Mary and Mary's giving them tall tales and telling her her grandmother tall tales, it's very interesting to see the interaction. Even when they call out Mary, at, I think it's at her grandmother's house, and they say, well, why did we punish you? And she tries to c- create a lie on the spot. And because the other girl is in the other students in the house, that she's able to kind of weasel her way out. It's, there's a lot of interesting female conversations and dynamics that don't involve Joe or any other men in this film. Yeah, and and I think conversely, there's a lot of, I mean, the movie is inordinately skewed towards women. I mean, other than Joe and maybe a couple guys that wander around, this is a predominantly female cast. And even the women are are totally, I mean, they're the first ones to abandon Martha and Karen. I think of Miriam Hopkins as, as Aunt Lily, who is the one to constantly tell Martha that, you know, she's not, her friendship with Karen isn't right. And then when she pops up at the end, I just love the way Shirley MacLaine performs the line where she says, you know, uh, where have you been? Because you think that she's trying to alert the audience of like the fact that she's left and we haven't seen her. And no, it's the fact that she, Aunt Lily, has revealed all this information about Martha that was as a key part of the, the slander case that they were using, and that because she refused to testify, the case went in Faye Bainter's character's favor, and then she shows up like nothing is wrong. Yeah, it's just like, oh, I was away, you know, how, how we actors do, and I was on tour. And, and it's I also like how they set that up, because when you last see Aunt Lily, she's having an argument with Martha. And as you said, there's a lot of stuff that Lily says that taking out of context could put the wrong 
image and especially in someone impressionable like Mary's mind. So when she's gone for a period, you're thinking, oh, okay, you know, she's there's going to be... A, I was expecting a moment where Martha calls or she comes running in, you know, after hearing the news. But when you find out that Aunt Lily heard what was going on, knew that there was a key court trial and that she was a key witness, and she decides, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Don't worry, this will all blow over because, again, I don't want my name attached to to the mess that you guys are in. It's really telling, and that's family. That was startling, and as you said, how she comes rolling in, just kind of almost shocked that, that Martha is is yelling at her for something that she felt would, uh, it wasn't such a, a big deal in her eyes. Yeah, Mary Hopkins, um, especially she got older, became known as the flighty aunt that caused a lot more problems than she fixed. I think of something like the role she played in The Heiress in, in 49, where she played another scheming aunt that makes bad decisions. And and here, there are little digs, I think, at, at her persona back in the day, talking about, you know, oh, she's going to... She's going to scrub the floors and Shirley MacLaine, I think, jokes something about, you know, you'd be back after the first floor. <laughs> so I, I do I do think that, yeah, there's a lot of really intriguing ways that the concept of allyship, a term that I'm sure was not a big thing in the 60s, is or is not effective. Do you want to talk about Mary's little klepto friend? Yeah, Rosalie. Rosalie. So Rosalie, I found was really interesting because, and this is the Veronica Cartwright character because in many ways Rosalie's seemingly a good kid that is just hanging around the the problem child that is Mary and is kind of thrown into things but then as the film progresses you see that Mary is holding a bit of information because Rosalie I guess has a, a pendant or some item that she claims that she had borrowed and that she was going to give back and once you get the the big scene where I guess they're supposed to help clear the the women you realize that R- Rosalie has sticky fingers for everything and we don't get enough of her to to really get that sense that she she's got a problem yeah veronica cartwright who was again the de facto child star of the 50s and 60s was always known for being a really good crier griever which is something she did in the birds and here she has a lot of moments where she has to kind of cry and be overwrought i'm i'm a big fan of movies and they did this a lot in hollywood in the the 40s and 50s where, like, a little girl really wanted something and she sold out her friends for it. I, I bring up the unfinished dance a lot, if anybody's seen that, and the girl sells out Margaret O'Brien for a hat. And so here here you have uh, Veronica Cartwright playing a little klepto, and that's what keeps Mary, keeps her under her thumb. I don't remember how it goes with the Bonita Granville character in these three. I want to say that Rosalie, which was played by, I think it was Marsha Mae Jones from Heidi, I want to say that they made fun of her because she was poor. <laughs> that was her big thing. Here, it's that she actually has a secret. And I think it's, it's worth bringing up that, you know, the concept of secrets starting early. You know, even as children, they have secrets. But yeah, it really kind of feels like a U.S. machina to keep her quiet for as long as the movie needs her to be. Yeah, she just, she's, and she always pops up just at the the right moment, or she just happens to be in the right location whenever Mary needs a little backup. It plays to the whole 
you know, these girls are innocent. And as we see that, at least for, for those two, these girls are, are far from, from innocent. Which is funny because none of the children were allowed to be near Shirley McLean because she cursed a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. Do we want to talk about the the end with Martha's suicide? I feel like we got to talk about that a bit more in depth than we have. Sure, let's go for it. Okay, so the, the movie culminates with Martha having this big, big speech. It's got a lot of loaded language in it that it dates the movie a bit unnecessarily. You know, the concept of maybe I've wanted you all these years. I couldn't call it by name before, but maybe it's been there since I first knew you. I can't, yeah, I can't stand to have you look at me. It's all my fault. I have ruined your life and I have ruined my own. I ruined you. She says, I feel so damn sick and dirty. I can't stand it anymore. So this is where I think the movie is really dated. The concept of, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism being being unnatural, I think, is one of the, the buzzwords that this movie uses. And that for, for Martha, it makes her sick and it makes her dirty. She feels that she's ruined not just herself, which is incidental to her. She's ruined this nice heterosexual girl and, and tainted her with this this lesbian tint i have to roll my eyes a little bit at the whole thing it's only good enough that Mar- that um shirley mclean is just so great in this scene i mean she's she's so fantastic in it but it is one of those times where if you watch the celluloid closet you hear that speech you're like oh yeah definitely from a different time period yeah, that's one. And again, it's, as you said, it's a testament to Shirley MacLaine because that scene, I think, plays really well. It's a very powerful scene. But as you said, once you start to parse through what's actually being said, that's why I felt that it almost felt a little out of place in terms of that scene being coming in so late to the film. Thing to look at, especially with modern eyes. And that's, that's I think, the big shame of this movie. The audience know that heterosexuality lives and that, you know, Martha died for a grander cause. And it really doesn't work. And I'm not quite sure how the Lillian Hellman play ends. It, it could end the same way, again, because Lillian Hellman was, was writing in a time when homosexuality was an open secret, but it was still not accepted. And so, yeah, you do... It's not surprising that Shirley MacLaine is the better performer in this movie because she's an act, she's a character that has such inner conflict and turmoil. It's written all over her face. But the movie ends with Hepburn. And I, I mean, Audrey Hepburn gets a lot of flack. A lot of people maintain she's not that good of an actress. And I think in something like this, where she is, pun intended, meant to play the straight man, it does kind of leave you wanting more. It, it, you, you do wish this wasn't her story. I still think this film is relevant today and i feel we're we're in a time again where people are starting to or at least trying to push back and trying to go back into the 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 old ways of of life where you didn't talk about these issues even though they're out in the open and it should be stuff that we we talk about i'm thinking like i know here in toronto our our school systems are trying to go back to the 1990 sex education because the most recent one where they talked about um, consent being respectful to transgender individuals lgbt individuals apparently that's ruffled some feathers so now they want to go back to the 1991 which predates google if you really want to think about the, the age that we're living in a lot of times you think we've jumped leaps and bounds and then you realize that there's still a lot more that we need to go so a film like this still resonates i just think that last half is a little a little problematic with modern we've progressed beyond it at this point 
Yeah. Uh, Kristen, where can folks find you? I am on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Excellent. And if you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at small mind, or if you want to reach the show, you can reach us on Twitter at changing reels AC. Uh, just a quick show note due to TIFF coming up and the LA film fest in September, we're going to take September off. So you'll probably hear the next new episode will, will drop sometime in October. Thank you for listening. Feel free to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you're listening to us. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. It's been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.